Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon and welcome to the Australian and New Zealand Studies channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bede Haynes and this afternoon we have from Auckland in New Zealand Dr Helen Sword who has written the book The Writer's Diet. Helen is a professor and a director of the Centre of Learning and Research in Higher Education at the University of Auckland. Helen has written a whole lot of books often about academic writing and she has a wonderful website called thewritersdiet.com that if you enjoy writing, you're well recommended to go and visit immediately because it has so many resources. It's not funny, including all of Helen's past books and books she's written chapters in or essays in, that sort of thing. Anyhow, good afternoon, Helen. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Delighted to be here. Now. This book I've written, uh, sorry, you've written The Writer's Diet. One thing I have to say, when I first, when I read the first sentence in the acknowledgements, we expect the diet guru to be svelte and svelte, a personal trainer, to support strong muscles. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what does that word mean? I'm stumped. <laughs> you know, I can kind of get the context of it, but five or six words in, I thought, oh, no, please, this is meant to be a book about writing. I can't get the first, the, the sixth word wrong. Anyhow, is that a is that a common word for you? Svelte. You don't know the word svelte. Well, I kind of got it from the context, but I didn't know what likely. <laughs> I thought I thought I wonder what that really means. Oh, that's funny. I didn't I I didn't think of it as not a common word. Um, but since I wrote that book, wrote those lines, um, how many years ago? At least. 13, 14 years ago, I've come to rethink the dieting metaphor a bit. I I think I'd always meant it to be about a kind of parallel to nutrition and fitness. But there are elements of the book and the use of the word svelte is one of them that makes an implicit comparison between um, writing and body shape. And I've come to regret that link. That's that shouldn't be there, and I've become much more conscious of it. But I should say straight away then that I hope people, when they think about this book, The Writer's Diet, they'll think in the sense of healthy diet, not um, skinny or spelt <laughs> necessarily. Yes. No, well, yeah, no. That, that, when I read it, the, the meaning you had you have now in mind was what I took away from it. So I'm pleased to work, hear that. Work with me. Good. Now, the book itself, what 
um, I should say the book was written in 2007 originally, I think, and it's been republished more recently. And what was the reason for writing this book? What did you have in mind? Well, it came about kind of almost accidentally. I, since since writing it, I've published two more books on on writing. I'm working on yet another one. It's become my main research area. But The Writer's Diet was written almost... It was one of those books just that just kind of told me it needed to be written, I guess. I, um, I'm a literary scholar by training. I was teaching in an English department um, and doing all the usual stuff, teaching literature and marking student essays, reading my colleagues' work, editing other people's work. I had PhD students, and I kept seeing the same issues come up again and again, which was that basically the more advanced a writer became, an academic writer became, the more likely they seemed to be to write these longer and longer and longer sentences that were quite circuitous sometimes, often in a passive voice, often quite long-winded. And I found myself often writing the same comments, whether on undergraduate papers or on my colleagues' work, pretty much along the lines of what would happen if you used more active verbs instead of using is, 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 was every sentence? What would happen if you used more concrete language? And I kind of distilled this advice into a one-page handout that I used to give my students. They'd turn in their first assignment. And I would turn it straight back to them and I'd say, take it home for another week with this handout and I want you to to work your way through it. So it was encouraging them to, um, it was just things like circle, circle every B verb, is, was, are, were, and then get rid of half of them, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. You know, this sort of generic advice. And then one year, the handout kind of needed refreshing. And I had this idea to use this diet and fitness metaphor. So I called it the writer's diet. And I just put in some food and fitness related metaphors. And the students responded to it completely differently than they had to the more generic handout I'd given them in the past. They remembered it. They gave copies to their friends. This was in the 90s, so people actually used photocopy machines and handed it out to people. And I got an email from one student a few months after the class had ended, and she said, I'm doing a teacher training placement now in a middle school, intermediate school, and I'd like to use the writer's diet with your permission. And she'd come up with a whole sort of word pyramid based on the food pyramid idea. And it was really that email that made me go, wow, maybe there's a book in this. And Mm. so it's quite a short book. Um, It's based around five points of grammar and syntax. Those are the five chapters. And once I had the idea, it just kind of compelled me to write it. Um, Yes. I want to ask about the typical reader. Who do you envisage would be the, what would, do you, because I, sorry, I should start that again. I imagine there are people, there's lots of people who would benefit from this book. People, probably anyone would benefit from this book. Maybe John McPhee accepted anyone would benefit from this book. Mm-hmm. But the, um, 
that's that's one thing. But who actually who is going to be encouraged to pick it up? Do you think? What's the characteristics of the sort of person who would want to pick up a book like this? Well, as I said, I wrote it thinking very much about academic writers and writing, all levels of academic writing. So from undergraduates through to um, academic colleagues writing advanced research for publication. But as I was working on it, I started looking for examples beyond the academic sphere, and I found a lot of the same, the same principles apply to any kind of writing, really. So I have a lot of examples from... Um, from fiction, from, yes, John McPhee, nonfiction essays um, of good writing, but also of what I would call this flabby writing, Mm -hmm. and also from things like uh, bureaucratic writing, advertising writing. Again, the same principles apply. So I tried to use um, examples in the book that weren't just of academic writing to give it a broader appeal. And sure enough, over the years, I've been just surprised at, at how, how far its reach has gone. Certainly there are people who use it in, in the schools, in high school, and possibly even younger. Um, I've had emails from people from screenwriters, from technical writers, from lawyers. Um, possibly the most interesting is a woman in the U.S. who teaches courses on how to write um, dog training books. Right. And she gives the writer's diet away as like a prize. (laughs) So she teaches people, apparently a lot of people who train dogs, they then want to write about their techniques for other people, but often they have no particular training or experience. And um, so starting with these sort of basics of how does a sentence work? How do you communicate clearly? It's just as relevant to those people writing dog training books as it is to the animal psychologist writing um, peer-reviewed academic essays. Yeah, I think that's one thing I, I did take from it is that writing is primarily an act of communication and any communication that can be made better then the communication is carried across much more efficiently. That really, yeah. and I, is it mean, I take it that is one of the one of the aims is having five simple, well, not simple, but five sort of rules you can follow. Principles, I would call them, done. rather than rules. Principles. Principles, Principles um, rather than rules. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about communication. And for me, it's it's really an ethical issue in a way. Um, somebody is going to have to do the hard work. Communication through language is hard, right? Mm. Somebody's going to have to do the work. It's either going to be the writer or it's going to be the reader. I think it's the writer's job. I don't think it should be my job as a reader to have to untangle these needlessly complex sentences um, to figure out what the writer's trying to say. And I, I don't think that people necessarily write on purpose to obfuscate. Um, mm. I'm sure there are some people who do, but mo- mostly writers want to communicate. But sometimes they, they've learned either explicitly or implicitly that if they write longer sentences, if they use bigger words, more impressive sounding words, that somehow this is going to be helpful in giving them authority. And often, in fact, it ends up getting in the way. 
and impeding the clear communication, which is what will give them real authority. Yes. On the first principle is about using active verbs, how they can make a sentence more. I think you, the expression that you use, the analogy you draw, is with muscles. They can drive the sentence. They can push the communication in a, in a more well active way, I suppose. And an example is taken from John McPhee. He writes about a fish. And one thing when I, I read that that passage in, your, in the book, and it's it's wonderful, it's great. It's almost as when I read it, you can almost hear the person talking. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's to me the the really good examples in this in the book where you said this, this is a, a this is a, an exemplary example of this particular principle, it's almost as though you can, you can hear the person talking to you as opposed to the ones that are more stodgy where it's more difficult, you've got to struggle with it. Do you think that's, um, that's actually what good writing should be? It should actually have a, a sort of resonance about it? Certainly, and yet at the same time, I'll bet John McPhee spent a long time crafting that. You know, I, it's certainly my experience that if I talk and record what I've said, I don't sound um, I don't sound as articulate and clear as I want to. I'm communicating also through hand gestures, through my voice, through my intonation, a lot of things that you can't do on the page. And so, again, this kind of extra work has to go in to um, get things across more succinctly. But I agree absolutely when we re- read really great writing, we feel as though the author is there speaking to us. Mm. And it's what a journalist friend of mine calls, um, she said she was trained to write with, uh, what's the word, um, a conversational yet authoritative voice. Right. And so I, th- I think that would be a good a good description of the McPhee passage. And you alluded a moment ago, Helen, to the, that it would take a lot of work to get a passage like that written. And that's one thing is, at least I find if I try to, I work as a lawyer, and if I try to write something complicated to make it very clear, it would often be, it might be five drafts. And if you looked at version one to version five, there may be only just the ands and the thes might be the same and everything else has changed. It's the actual process of getting it all sorted out. Is how important in your experience is the process of realizing a first draft is just that. It's just the it's important, of course, but it's the first draft and it's really work from there. Yeah, I think that's a really important principle for students, particularly to learn or kind of people who aren't used to doing a lot of writing. They'll write something, they'll see that it's not communicating what they know they want to say, and they'll go, oh, well, I guess I'm just not a very good writer, whereas, you know, John John McPhee's a fabulous writer. That's kind of like me going out on the golf course for the first time, taking a swing at a golf ball. I miss, do terribly, and I go, oh, I'm just, I'm never going to be a good golfer like Tiger Woods. Mm. Okay, there's a big, you know, there's, there's talent, there are talented writers, just as as there are talented sports people, but there's also hard work. And if I give up on the first swing, then it's true, I'll never become a better golfer. But if I take some lessons, if I spend some time, I get some coaching, my game will improve. And writing is absolutely like that, too. So, um, it's both taking that time to go through drafts, but it's also having the principles in mind, knowing what you're doing. 
Um, I'm amazed when I talk to sometimes quite advanced writers at how little they understand about how sentences work. I don't want to say that's true for everyone, but it's true for a lot of people. And particularly in Australia and New Zealand, I have had so many people with PhDs tell me they'll swear up and down that they never learned grammar at all at school. I don't know if that's actually true or if they just learned it when they were 13 and they were looking out the window and didn't hear what the, what the teacher said, weren't paying attention, it was the wrong moment. But to me, knowing how nouns and verbs and, and parts of speech work, it's not so much about the rules. Um, it's about having the tools at your disposal to build strong sentences, which in turn will build strong arguments and persuasive writing. Yes. The, what is, can I ask you then, the, if a person is teaching writing and they want to almost be in, like an editor or a copy editor to assist in the writing process, I imagine that also must have its difficulties rather than just rewriting for the person, actually getting the person to do the work. And Absolutely. That's what these principles, to me at least, were these sections you have at the end of each chapter where, what do you call it, the heart attack, and you've got these, this sort of scale of, of how, mm-hmm. how much the writing doesn't apply the relevant principle. And I, I mean, is, that, is, the, is one of the ideas of that to train the writer to write, not the editor to say this is how you should write? Exactly. And The Writer's Diet is not about things being right or wrong. It's not a grammar book. Again, it's a it's a book of principles or what people in science and other areas call heuristic. Mm-hmm. So a heuristic, it's a, it's a framework, a set of principles that you work within, but you still have to figure out how to apply them. And so uh, when I when I developed what I called the waistline test, this little test that you can take inside the, um, in the, you, the, the book shows you how to do it with colored pencils or highlighters, but you can also go to my website at writersdiet.com and just drop in a piece of text between a hundred and a thousand words and you push a button and it gives you the diagnosis, this um, flabby to flabby to fit, or I now have a version where you can go and you can change it. So if you don't like the diet and fitness metaphor, you can have cloudy to clear or soggy to solid, or there are several different metaphors, or you can write your own. But the basic principle or what, what it's trying to show you is that um, is how to work within this set of principles that I describe in the book. The issue with that is as soon as you have something that's automated and all you have to do is push a button, people want instant, you know, they want everything to be done for them then. So actually to teach, and I think it's the same, you hand something over to an editor, you want them just to fix it up for you. Whereas in fact, it's much more important to learn the principles so that you will write better the next time. So a way to put it is that the writer's diet is trying to take you from what's a simple algorithm. It's basically uh, data in, data out. And it's trying to take you from that to a heuristic, to understanding a set of principles that you have to work within. Mm. So that was probably a needlessly complicated (laughs) explanation for what I'm trying to do. But it's getting at that idea of... um, 
it's quite it's quite challenging to motivate people to work hard. That's basically the book is saying. If you want to write better sentences, it's you you gotta you gotta work them. It's like you want to be stronger. You gotta lift weights or lift things. Go to the gym. Work out. And yes. so the writer's diet is is offering a workout for writers, basically. And with with that last point, with the workout for writers, and you have to you have to do the work. The how do you um how do you think you would be able to deal with situations where a person thought, well, I can understand this is great, but I just sort of plug away at this writing, which would become heart attack on Helen's sword scale. But <laughs> I don't get fired. It's bad, sure, but my life just goes on. Because how do you, how do you convert someone like that to your cause? Uh, <laughs> that's a tough one. You know, you can lead a horse to water, right? Mm. But um, I try really hard. One thing I tried to do both with the book and with the website is make it fun. Actually, make it enjoyable. And a lot of the research that I've done in the 10 or 15 years since I first wrote this book, I've been really interested in the relationship between the craft of writing and the emotions around writing. And one thing I found from doing lots of interviews and lots of work with academic writers mostly, but um, across, across all different disciplines, is that the people who are the, the best craftspeople, the ones, the kind of John McPhee's of the world, I haven't spoken to him, but I've interviewed some of the other people that I quote in the book. And they will almost invariably tell you some version of the following. Writing is hard. Writing can be frustrating. I don't get it right the first time, but it's incredibly satisfying to face this challenge of communicating well. And when you get something right, when you bring your craft to it, you bring your best techniques and you get a sentence that really sings, that really does what you want it to do. It's, it's a fantastic feeling. And again, I, I think it's the feeling of the top performing athlete or of the sculptor who brings a beautiful figure out of a block of stone there's a real satisfaction to it. So what I would hope, what I try to do certainly with my own students and colleagues is to get them excited about the craft so that instead of saying, oh, it, this is hard, I can't be bothered. You say, this is hard, but it's fascinating. It's challenging. It's a good challenge. I can get better. I can see the progress. I can hear the progress in my sentences. I'm motivated to do this. Mm. With, um, no, that's, that's, thanks for sharing that. That was great. With the chapter on noun density using particular nouns rather than abstract nouns, concrete language rather than abstract language, and that's described as being the, the bones on which the, the work turns. I'd like to ask you, um, with that, one, one thing that you often that I often see when I read fiction is that is good fiction writers will often use a lot of concrete nouns in a sentence, but then it's almost as though that's not enough. They realise they can get a little bit more particularization out of it by then using a metaphor or a simile. How do, you, how do those – how do you – can you say something about that? 
Well, metaphor and simile, metaphors are usually concrete, right? So uh, certainly a poet and plenty of fiction writers as well, um, they'll use metaphor precisely because they're following that show-don't-tell principle that Mm. fiction writers um, learn. And what was the... I think Chekhov was supposed to have said, "Don't, don't tell me that. Don't tell me that the moon is shining. Show me the glint of moonlight on broken glass. Something like that." But you could take that to emotions too. Don't tell me that you feel sad. You know, show me the tears in the eyes. Or show me the look on the face. Or show me the the landscape of hurt, right? All of those are really concrete techniques. Mm. And the point that I make in the book and that I make over and over again to students and colleagues and basically anybody who will listen to me because to me it's kind of the number one principle of, of good writing. If you get this one, it will make a huge difference to your writing. The more concrete your language the more your readers will respond to it because we live in bodies. We experience the world through our senses. It's very easy for our brains to deal with concrete images. So if I say to you, um, the man with the red hat went around the corner into the dairy and asked for the bottle of milk on the second shelf. If I asked you to give that back to me, you'd probably get about 90% of it right, uh, right? Those details, the man, the red hat, the corner, the dairy, Mm -hmm. the second shelf, every one of them sticks in your mind. Whereas if I gave you a typically abstract, um, bureaucratic or academic kind of sentence, you, you can't hook on to anything. And I see this again and again at things like school prize givings. You sit there and the you know, the principal, headmaster, whatever, will be droning on and on about striving for excellence and the achievement of the attainment of the blah, you know, and you're just, you can't see any of that stuff. Mm. And then they'll say, let me tell you a story about this former student who started a company. And as soon as you have a story and a person and things happening, concrete verbs as well as concrete nouns, you remember it all because that's how our brains work. So a really key point in this book is that particularly if you're writing about abstract ideas, as academic writers often are, as advertisers often are, as government officials often are, as soon as you're talking about abstract ideas like excellence, that's all the more reason to find some concrete language to go with it. And that can be stories. It can be examples. It can be metaphors as well. It can be metaphors even in the verbs. Like instead of saying to um, that you're going to analyze something, if you say you're going to explore some ideas, even though you're talking abstractly, that concrete metaphor of exploring just, just, sticks in the head a little bit more it's a little a little hook yes and how do some of these principles work their way into academic essays in refereed journals and things like that where 
there's almost a tradition of having language that doesn't apply in mo- a lot of these principles a lot of the time. Do you- well, just after writing this book, I became quite interested in academic language in different disciplines because I looked for a lot of examples for this book and I, I realized there's this whole kind of corpus of, you know, most academic journal articles. If if you are part of a university and have access to a university library, you can get thousands of journals, millions of articles. And so I thought, oh, well, this would be really interesting to go and look at how do psychologists write? How do medical people write? How do philosophers write? And just see who was or wasn't using these writer's diet principles. And that led to me writing a book called Stylish Academic Writing, because what Mm -hmm. I found was that there are examples of people who do use these principles in pretty much any discipline, and yet they seem to be the exception rather than the norm. And what I found talking to talking to writers about what they consider to be stylish academic writing, again and again, I would hear people say, oh, I, I like people who use lots of examples and who are concrete rather than abstract and who tell stories and who make me feel like they're just talking to me across the table. And then they themselves, though, would feel like they're somehow not allowed to write like that. They have to use the big words in the abstract language. So there's a big gap between what academics who write for peer-reviewed journals like to read often and what they feel authorized to write. And I guess you could say it's my mission in life to try to close that gap. And I should say to our listeners that you have, that was one of the other interviews you have done on the New Books Network. Is that right, Helen, for that book? That's right. I did an interview for Stylish Academic Writing, and then I also did one for the book after that, which is called Air and Light and Time and Space, How Successful Academics Write. And for that one, I interviewed 100 successful academic writers about a whole lot of things, but including style and craft, because I was interested to, again, find out the how they learn to write and what their emotions are around the writing and try to figure out why it is that so much academic writing is so difficult to read when we all have access to these same principles. Yes. And there was another, there's a wonderful example you have on page 23 of your book from the philosopher. I'll say his name incorrectly and then you can correct me, but Kwame, Appiah, Kwame Anthony, got the Anthony right? <laughs> yeah, Kwame Anthony and, Appiah, that's right. And it's um, it's just a really it's such a I won't spoil it, it's like, but the the paragraph's great. The, just the way it ends, the just the the last words after the semicolon, it just brings the whole thing home. And that, to me, when I read that, I thought, wow, that's great. It's a philosopher writing really clearly. And some philosophy does have that discipline of trying to write clearly. American, A lot of American sort of um, 20th century materialist philosophy has that, that lovely tone to it. The, um, and I just thought this was one where it reads beautifully, and I thought, I bet this took just so much work to get the balance in this paragraph right. But it's, it's, now we have it share amongst 
other humans. It's great. Yeah, and I liked it so much that I interviewed Apia then for my ne- for my next book. When I did the interviews, some of the people I talked to were were people I discovered while writing this book or stylish academic writing. Um, should I read the paragraph so that yes, listeners can, can hear it? Yes. So this is in the noun chapter. And the point that I'm making is that academics in all different disciplines, and I give an example of scientists as well, um, and also outside of academics, um, uh, the essayist Joan Didion, and I finish with, my, uh, with Martin Luther King and his famous I Have a Dream speech. So all of these are examples of writers who are using concrete language to make an abstract point. So Appiah here, he's talking about, it's from his his book, Cosmopolitanism, Cosmopolitanism, which is a very abstract concept. Mm -hmm. He's talking about the universality of the human condition. Okay, so cosmopolitanism universality and condition are all what I call zombie nouns. They're abstract nouns. They're a particular type of abstract noun called a nominalization that's quite long, that's kind of swallowed up other nouns and verbs. And yet here's how Apia writes about that abstract concept. Our ancestors have been human for a very long time. If a normal baby girl born 40,000 years ago were kidnapped by a time traveler and raised in a normal family in New York, she would be ready for college in 18 years. She would learn English along with, who knows, Spanish or Chinese, understand trigonometry, follow baseball and pop music. She would probably want a pierced tongue and a couple of tattoos. And aside from a couple of words in there like trigonometry, Almost every single noun in that passage is really concrete. It's things we can visualize or, or hear, like pop music. Um, it's got a kind of story in it, this idea of being kidnapped by a time traveler. And I would make the point that just as with John McPhee, this is a writer who's he's very aware of what he's doing. This will be a philosopher who has learned not to to write only in abstract language. He's learned that if he wants to reach people with his books, and he's one of these people who does write for a general public, that he's got to do it through the concrete nouns. Mm. So again, it's a principle. It's not saying these nouns are allowed and these aren't. You can't use trigonometry because it's an abstract noun. Of course you can use it. But when it's in a sentence that has so much concreteness, it's easy to understand. Whereas if it's one of a string of 10 or 12 abstract nouns, our our brain just, it's a lot of cognitive load to put on us to, to give a whole lot of abstract nouns in, in one sentence or paragraph. Mm. And I, I imagine Helen in the university environment, a common complaint from students might be, I've only got two and a half thousand words for this essay why can't I have another 500? And <laughs> I, I suppose some of the, these principles here are designed to say, well, it's almost like you have a puzzle. You've got, you've got these concepts. You've got to put them within this playing field. And, and it's actually it, it, would, it ought to – one thing it ought to teach you is to be succinct in your ideas but also to write, to actually make words fit within this frame. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And I, I always put limits on uh, writing assignments and tell students it's harder to write 1,500 words than to write 3,000 words. And the reason I'm giving you 1,500 words is because that discipline of figuring out what's the most important stuff you want to be saying and not just kind of dribble on and on is an important part of learning to communicate. Mm. The, um, the set, this is, do you, adjectives and adverbs is a principle about not overdoing it with adjectives and adverbs. And that one of the takeaways I took from that was it's more, it's, it, it violates the, in one case, the show don't tell principle. And secondly, a lot of, a lot of, um, you have an example, it's in the exercises, but there's an example where the point that you make is a lot of times an adjective or an adverb can just be a way of it just it, throwing a conclusion in without actually arguing for the point. So you, ob- so you use examples of clearly or obviously as, as, as examples of, of, I imagine, of that. What would you have to say about adjectives and adverbs? Well, I love adjectives and adverbs. And one interesting thing that I learned when I developed the, the writer's diet test, which basically counts certain parts of speech. And so it counts not all adjectives, but what I call kind of academic ones, ones with typical word endings that you hear over and over and over again. And then, of course, it counts all the LYs, which are then the, the adverbs. And I found that I use more adjectives and adverbs, a higher percentage than most other academics in any field, actually. So for me, it's always the area where I get a diagnosis usually of needs toning, basically saying, you know, and I've learned to look at my adjective use and go, do I really need three adjectives here? You know, would one do? So I'm the first to say that I I love them. Um, But part of the point I make in the chapter is that if you're using concrete, vivid, concrete, active verbs and concrete nouns, you probably don't really need a lot of adjectives. Um, And then adverbs can be, as you said, kind of a, a way of slipping your opinion in, which can be fine if, if you're aware that that's what you're doing. It's one of those things where you can find examples of, um, of writers who give advice on writing who will say, you should never, ever use adverbs. Um, you know, they'll have these sort of blanket rules. And that's why I have in the book lots of exceptions to anything mm. that you might construe as a rule. So there's this wonderful... Um, example in there from Richard Dawkins, I think, Mm. um, writing this obituary where he uses something like six adverbs in in just a few sentences. But every single one of them is just perfectly chosen to describe this person who's died, including the adverb eorishly, as in like Eeyore. (laughs) And so, you know, you get you get a writer at the top of their game, a really top stylist, they'll be violating every single one of the writer's style principles at some point, but they're violating them only because they, because they're aware of them, if that makes sense. 
You know, I doubt yes. that Dawkins uses that many adjectives most of the time, or that many adverbs. He's he's putting them in there to make a particular kind of point about a person. And in fact, when I was writing the book, um, I had a colleague um, in the English department at Auckland, Brian Boyd, who kept emailing me passages from Shakespeare and saying, well, you know, Shakespeare uses lots of be verbs here, you know, to be or not to be, that is the question, right? Or Shakespeare uses lots of adjectives here. And so I ended up um, going through and finding a passage from Shakespeare for every one of the five chapters where Shakespeare violates the writer's principles. And yet, overall, if you take Shakespeare's plays and you put them through the writer's diet, overall, he, he conforms to the principles. He works within the principles. So the point I'm making there, again, is that a top stylist is going to play around with language at appropriate points. So if you're writing about a suicidal Danish prince who's trying to decide whether to live or not to live, hmm. you know, to be or not to be <laughs> is the appropriate verb to be using. Yes. Yeah, no, that's, yeah of course, that's that. Um, you made that, that point's made very well. One thing I'd like to comment on, Helen, is one thing that I was thinking about reading through this book is a couple of examples of famous writers, Sibel and Dawkins. And I wonder if, so when Sibel's book, um, Latitude or Longitude, which, whichever one it was, came out, I think it was... Yeah. um. Um, longitude and Richard Dawkins, the selfish gene, or something like that. It's. I wonder how much because that when they came out, they were so influential, and it was just suddenly it was suddenly this thing. Let longitudes just everyone was talking about longitude. It was like the most obvious thing in the world. But before that book came out, no one probably ever thought twice about it. And the same with with genes, this concept like that. I wonder how much of the fact that those people are such good written communicators actually advance those scientific fields through research and through funding and through all the rest of it because they could communicate ideas that people took up. Absolutely. And in fact, I had heard of the whole thing about longitude and about um, uh, the, um, the search for how to... Um, for how to how to measure it, because it just so happens that my husband, whom I met when we were both doing our PhDs at Princeton, he has a degree in the history of science, and he studied 18th century scientific instrument makers. So he had written an entire um, dissertation chapter about um, about the guy who found who who finally found longitude. And so when David Sobel's book came out, he was like, I, I already wrote about that. You know, how mm. come this book's such a big hit? Every, every historian of science already knows this story. But the thing about David Sobel, she had actually studied from memory. She might even have a PhD or she, she studied towards a PhD in the history of science. And then she became a journalist instead. So she had that wonderful combination of having kind of a research research brain, research ability, but learn to write like a journalist, in other words, to communicate with the general public. And so she was able, this book actually came out of a, a conference that she attended 
at Harvard, I think, that was on on some anniversary of this, um, John Harrison's discovery of, of longitude and uh, or of how to measure it. And she became quite interested in it and wrote wrote an article for the um, Harvard Alumni Magazine, which then turned into the book. So I actually have something pretty close to documentary evidence that it was something that the general public, you know, didn't really know much about. And she, in this beautifully written, quite short book, just Mm. brings the whole thing to life. And the point I make in the book, again, is that you you can hardly get more abstract than longitude and latitude longitude in particularly it's it's measured from greenwich mean time so it's not it's not even a real thing it's it's mm. totally a construct and yet she uses this concrete language storytelling all of these writers type principles basically to to bring that whole idea to life yeah that's great now we do have to finish up soon but before we go i would like to ask about the last principle, and I found this one very interesting, called waste words, about using things like it, this, that, and there, where they may not be necessary, where they can be cut out with a little bit of rearranging within the sentence. And one of the things I found there was once you're aware of this, well, I became aware of this problem, well, I call it a problem, I suppose you, you might disagree with that, but I, I you became aware of it. When you realize there's different ways to do it, you think, wow, that's actually really good because you can just get, you've just developed this bad habit. You can kind of just fix and it changes so much so quickly. Yeah. And that's the whole idea of the writer's diet. It's the kind of book that um, ought to be become unnecessary for you. And the same thing with the online test, which is basically just an automated version of the principles in the book. Um, If you read the book, and you really absorb the principles, and then you you do the test on your writing a few times, keep trying to change it, to improve it, to strengthen it using those principles, bit by bit you find that you don't need the test anymore because you, you, you're just putting it into practice, um, especially those words, as you say, it, this, that, and there. Once you become aware of how easy it is to just drop them in and how they tend to clutter sentences and make them mm. longer. Um, yeah, you just start automatically rewording them. And sometimes it takes a bit of extra work. It takes more work to find an active verb than to default to is. Um, but that extra work is you doing it so that you can communicate with your reader more clearly. Mm. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Helen. It's greatly appreciated. Can I just put in a quick pitch as well, not just for the website, but if you go to writersdiet.com, you'll see as well a link to um, what I call the Writers Diet app. Technically, mm-hmm. it's, um, it's an add-on for uh, Microsoft Word. So you can download it for free, and then you can use the Writers Diet test on an entire Word document, and it 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 took me years to develop it. I'm very proud of it. Um, it breaks the whole document up into chunks, shorter right. chunks, and then runs the test on them. So you can actually look at, it gives you a kind of heat map of the whole document, and you can see where the more problematic passages are and go and, and spend time on them. Um, 
the thing I always say to people, it's about the writer's diet. Uh, take it with a sense of humor and a grain of salt. It's not meant to make you feel bad about your writing. It's meant to help you become a better writer. And so if you take it in that principle, also it's an algorithm. You're a human being with a brain. So there will always be times when it gives you readings where you go, but I like this passage. That's fine. Mm -hmm. You're, you're the writer. You get to decide. But if you, um, if you use the online test, having read the book, that's the most powerful combination. It will make a difference to your writing and a lasting difference where eventually you don't need the test or the book at all. Okay. And, um, I should also say, I had a look at your website today. You seem to have a few um, more online offerings now because of the of COVID-19. Is that is that mm. still the case? Is there things people can join online? Absolutely. So that's actually a different website, which is helensword.com. And on that website, I call it my resources for writers site. And I've got a whole bunch of... Um, videos people can watch on various aspects of writing and i've got a free newsletter and a few months ago i started a membership community called the right space and um, we've got members from around 30 countries already who meet online to write and talk about writing and the focus it's the focus is on community and productivity and all those things but more than anything i see the focus as being on craft on coming into a supportive community where you can talk to other people about writing kick-ass sentences, which is um, what the writer's diet is all about. Excellent. Well, once again, Helen, thank you very much. I can't recommend the book highly enough. It's, it's, it's like a gift to people who want to learn to do what they do a bit better. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. No trouble. I'll speak to you later. This has been the Australian and New Zealand Channel Study of the New Book Network. That was our interview with Helen Sword. Thank you.